In Romans chapter 15, verse 1, Paul writes, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... Receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. In Romans chapter 14 and here in the beginning of Romans chapter 15, Paul continues to elaborate on the theme of Christian unity. Paul cares about our sacrifice in chapter 12, our service in chapter 13, our citizenship in chapter 14. But the undercurrents, the swirl, if you will, of Paul's exhortations are all around this broad theme of unity. Because remember, the explosive issues of food and feasts were threatening to divide the young church in Rome. Paul knew that divisions hide Christ from a watching world. The world looks at you and looks at your marriage and looks at your business and looks at your church and looks at your circumstances and wonders if what you say about Christianity is true and what you say about Christ is true and what you say about salvation and forgiveness and hope is true. They wonder when you say that God brings peace in my heart, he wonders then, then how do you explain the lack of peace in your family or in your church or in your congregation? In a very real sense, church unity is like world peace. I've never met a single person that, that I've walked up to and said, well, tell me what you think about peace. And they go, I'm against it. Everybody wants peace, but not everyone is willing to pay the price that peace necessitates. And so Paul says, do you want unity? Do you want harmony? Do you want hope? Stop judging each other, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, because we're accountable to God. Avoid causing each other to stumble, chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, but rather love each other. We please God and others, and therefore we don't please ourselves, chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. And what's at stake? It's unity. Jewish people have a saying. When two or more Jews are gathered together, there are four or five opinions. We understand, we read the scripture and we say, hey, doesn't the Bible say where two or more are gathered there, Jesus is in the midst? Well, yeah. But where two or more Christians gather, there is the potential for pain, for division, 
for disagreement. And so people are left with this challenge. The challenge is Paul has said, receive one another, minister to one another, encourage one another. Well, what if we have a difference of opinion? What if we have a deeply divided point over a non-essential issue? Paul has spoken about that in what I would call six different questions that we've looked at. Number one, how are we to deal when we come to a disagreement or a difference of opinion? How are we to deal with the fact that we're, we're supposed to get along with each other? And, and how are we to deal with the fact that I might have a different opinion from yours? Paul says, are you fully persuaded or convinced about your position in verses 1 through 5? Are you doing this as unto the Lord in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 14? Will it stand the test of the judgment seat of Christ in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 14? Am I offending or causing my brother and sister to stumble in verses 13? 13 through 21. Can I honestly say that whatever it is that I'm anticipating doing, I'm doing it by faith in verses 22 through 23. And finally here, the final question, Paul is asking us to consider, am I doing this in order to please myself or to please my brothers and my sisters? Am I willing to do this for others? And Paul encourages the Romans to follow Christ in his example. Paul anticipates the reader who who has this question in his or her mind. Well, what in the world and why in the world would I voluntarily prohibit, restrict, restrain my behavior in order to make other people happy? Why should I? And Paul points to the idea that Jesus voluntarily lays aside his prerogatives and privileges. We have Christ as our example. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He cites the psalmist. And again, for the person who anticipates the question, well, why should I read the psalms? And why should I even believe the Old Testament scripture? How do I even know that this text applies to my my life? And Paul says, of course it applies to your life. Because these things were written for our learning. That we, through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, might have hope in verse 4. So do churches and congregations have the right to establish some sort of minimum standard of behavior and conduct? And I think that the answer is yes, but the church cannot have a prohibition or a restriction that goes beyond the scriptures. That's the point. We lovingly allow differences among Christians. But we don't allow those differences to turn into opportunities for division. So what are the the attributes of a healthy congregation? What constitutes a healthy church? When I was visiting my children and grandchildren, it's a house full of babies. House full of babies. And you can tell when a baby is sick. They get flush when they have a fever. They need help and support. But what about a church? What what are the marks of, of of a healthy church? Paul says, hey, guess what? In Paul's world, the healthy congregation, the healthy church 
is marked by the mature helping the immature, the strong helping the weak, those people who find themselves in difficulty being supported by those who find themselves in abundance. So what is the point that Paul is making? Well, in Paul's world, the mature help the immature. Everyone studies and obeys the scriptures in verse 4. Everyone works hard at harmony in verses 5 and 6. Everyone avoids discrimination in verse 7. And we're going to discover that another attribute is the reality of hope. Hope in the life of individuals. Not just any kind of hope. Not just some sort of political rhetoric where people talk about hope and change. It's a hope that's rooted and grounded and connected to the person of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and the message of Jesus and the reality of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. We're talking about hope in the biblical sense of the word. And we'll have more to say about that. But look at verse 1. Look what it says. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Paul counts himself among the strong. We then who are strong. How do the strong bear with the sensitivities or scruples or convictions of the weak? Paul says, here's how you deal with it. By refusing to please yourself. By embracing them. By choosing to be aware of the circumstances and sensitivities that they are going through. And you meet that with compassion and sensitivity. And so Paul really invites the reader to ask the question, do you also count yourself among the strong? Or do you count yourself among the weak? If you count yourself among the strong, then guess what? Look to the others building up. Verse 2. Look to Jesus as your example. Verse 3. One of the things that I want to draw to your attention is that Paul isn't surprised, outraged, disappointed that the church sometimes has immature people, hurting people, people who are in pain, people who are in trouble. Who are the weak? Those who grumble, complain, criticize, murmur, chairs are too hard, lights too bright, too soft, music too loud, music too soft, service too long. Who are the weak? It might be you. And embarrassingly, it's often me. Because the weak are sometimes those who cling to the sad sentiment that Christianity is about a list of things that we do or we don't do. You all remember the statement, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with those that do. And your Christianity becomes the list of the things that you do or you refrain from doing. The weak are those who judge according to appearance, who judge hypocritically, who judge superficially. The weak are those who knowingly or unknowingly sin. Ouch. Because now all of a sudden we find ourselves in the camp of the weak. Sometimes we are the weak. The weak are those who still struggle with fear. 
and addictions. And who are the strong? Paul's answer might surprise you. The strong aren't simply the mature. The strong aren't simply the people who are right. The strong aren't those people who have simply overcome their fears and disappointments and challenges and who have abandoned their weaknesses in the strength and the power of Jesus, in grace and the gospel and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That isn't just simply who the strong are. For Paul, and in Paul's world, the strong become anyone who's willing to help the weak. Isn't that interesting? How in one moment you are the weak, and then in another moment you are the strong. And look at the expression. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. That expression, ought to bear, doesn't mean simply put up with. It doesn't mean reluctantly accept. The expression carries the idea of tenderness. Again, like a mother carrying a child or a a father who, who has a son who has a special need or a specific disability. Way before I ever became a Christian, I, I was in a school play in the sixth grade. I tried out for Ebenezer Scrooge, but I got the role of Bob Cratchit. And those of you who are familiar with the Christmas Carol, you'll remember in, in his play, Dickens has Bob Cratchit with the opening line, Mr. Scrooge, can I put a small piece of wood by the fire? And Scrooge says, what, Cratchit? But sir, it's, it's very cold in here. Put that wood back. And you remember Bob Cratchit has a son, Tiny Tim. And you remember that he has a real problem, a disability. And one of the iconic images of, is of Bob Cratchit carrying his disabled son on his shoulder. That's the image of ought to bear. We see the father pushing his son's wheelchair. We see a son tenderly helping his or her mother walk to the car. Love lifts the weak on the shoulders of the strong. But make no mistake about it, hope creates the glue that makes the bearing of the burden possible. And the word bearing... Here, in the original language, bastedzian, it is the same word translated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever the Gospels speak of Jesus bearing the cross. Robert Mounts says that the term means to shoulder a burden as if it were your own. And that's exactly what Jesus does for you. He, he shoulders your burden as if it were His own. And who are the strong? It's the person who makes the decision to say, I'll pray for you. I'll encourage you. I'll support you. I'll be with you. Who are the strong? Those who are willing to bear the weak. Those of us who refuse to preoccupy ourselves just simply with the lengthy debates about the rightness or the wrongness of a disputable matter. And remember what a disputable matter is. A disputable matter is that where there is no evidence of sin. 
Can you do this? Can you not do this? Remember, this is the person who's deeply concerned. Not about simply the rightness or the wrongness of a subject, but how will it affect our fellowship? How will it affect our communication? How will it affect our relationship and our fellowship with each other? The strong asks the question, am I tearing this person down or am I building this person up? The Berkeley translation reads, we who are strong ought to put on ourselves the weakness of those who lack strength. And that's exactly what he's saying. And that's the sign of a healthy church. It isn't just simply the presence of mature and immature. It isn't simply the presence of the strong and the weak. It's each of us looking at one another saying, oh, today is a weak day. Oh, today is a strong day. In verse 2 it says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Leading to edification. And the word please is also very interesting. In our culture, our society, and our language, we use the word please as an invitation or a formality or a response. But here, in verse 2 and also in verse 3, where it says, For even Christ did not please himself. The, the word in the original language is aresco. And it probably means to render service to. Let each of us be willing. The idea is you sacrifice yourself and you render service to another. The real question that you should be asking about the text then is, Well, what does that mean? Let each of us please his neighbor. What does that mean? What does service mean? What does rendering service mean? I'm going to suggest to you that it means giving people hope. Giving people the truth. You give people Jesus and you give them the gospel and you give them truth, hope for the neighbor's good, strength for weakness, beauty for ashes. We make ourselves useful by giving people hope, by giving people confidence, by giving people a sense of encouragement. We make ourselves useful by giving them the sense that there is forgiveness of sin available for them. There is righteousness in Christ. There's grace and mercy. There's the hope of eternal eternal life. We give people hope when we remind them that there is acceptance by God, the hope of abundant life. We build up. We focus on what's best for the person. And Paul says, Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example. In verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When he quotes the scripture in the passage, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a moment, but I, I want you to understand the context of the conversation that Paul is having with the Romans for the person who says, why should I sacrifice? Why should I give up? my rights or my privileges. And Paul says, Jesus gives up his rights and his privileges. Whatever sacrifice that you'll ever have to make, 
as a mother or a father or as a husband or as a wife or as a grandma or a grandpa, as a friend or a neighbor, whatever sacrifice, whatever sacrifice you ever make, whatever sacrifice you ever make in order to allow someone to go forward in peace and harmony is nothing compared to what Jesus Jesus' sacrifice. Our sacrifice will never amount to anything. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Where in the gospel do we see Jesus going to the ancient version of the mall, and he says, hey, will you buy me this? Will you get me that? Will you buy me these clothes? Hey, you know what I want? I want a gold-plated chariot. I mean, I am, after all, the second person of the Trinity and the Son of God. Don't I deserve a little extra, a little privilege? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't come to receive service. He doesn't get pedicures and manicures. And by the way, ladies, I'm not against pedicures and manicures. It's okay to look beautiful. It's okay to get your hair done. It's okay. All of that stuff is okay. But what I'm, the point that I'm, I'm making is that Jesus willingly sacrifices. In Psalm 69, verses 19 and 20, he quotes David's psalm. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My ad- adversaries are all before Before you, reproach has broken my heart and I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. When Paul quotes David, David is crying out because of the unjust persecution that he's receiving. But the unjust persecution that David receives becomes a type and a picture of the son of David. The persecution that Jesus will receive. In John's gospel chapter 15 verse 25. Jesus says. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled. Which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Do you know what Jesus is quoting? Psalm 69 verse 4. The few verses before Paul's quotation. David and Jesus knew what it was like to live in a hostile world. They knew what it was like to live in a world where people were hostile to God and they were hostile to his love and they're hostile to the word of God. Paul's point, Jesus doesn't live for himself. We sometimes teach our children to take our advice but ignore our example. No, 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 child. Do what I say, not what I You know, we understand that we're imperfect and that we're incomplete. And we also understand the difference between right and wrong. In Acts chapter 20, we have Paul's tearful farewell as he bids the elders of Ephesus goodbye. In verse 35, we taste those tears. Paul is weeping and crying. And in verse 25, he says, I've shown you. In every way, by laboring like this, that you might support the weak 
And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In Galatians 6.2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is not just preaching on Paul's part. He's going to live his life and he's going to demonstrate his, his, his ministry as if that's true. If you would have met Paul, the first thing that he would have said is, what can I do for you? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? How can I help you in this thing that we call our walk and our life with Jesus? Think of what a revolutionary concept this is. Paul says that the mature believer, the serious believer, no longer restricts the conversation to a simple analysis of, well, that's right and that's wrong. He says the real mature believer, the real strong believer, won't just simply talk about what is right and what is wrong, but also will include in the conversation, how can I help you? How can I minister to you? How can I encourage you? Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, To be like Christ, this is our goal, plain and simple. It sounds like a peaceful, peaceful relaxing. It sounds like an easy objective. But stop and think. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So must we. It's neither easy, nor quick, nor natural. It is impossible in the flesh. Slow in coming. Supernatural in scope. Only Christ can accomplish it within us, unquote. Swindoll's exactly right. In order to leave the world of the weak and enter into the world of the strong, you're not going to be able to do that by simply making a decision to be different. You're going to have to be willing to say, Jesus, will you come inside of my heart and my life? Holy Spirit, will you, will, will you be the strength to give me the willingness to say no to myself in, in order to say yes to my wife or yes to my children. I got to tell you, it doesn't take a whole lot of the Holy Spirit to say yes to your grandchildren. It, it just sort of happens. What is it that you want? I want the world. Okay, it's yours. The strong and the weak study and obey the scriptures. Look what it says in verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The strong church, the healthy church, bears one another burdens. And then the strong church, the healthy church, studies the Bible. That might come as a shock to you because people will come here to Calvary. Well, what do you guys do here? We study the Bible. Own another Bible church. You guys study the Bible. You mean you, if you go to Calvary, you're going to have to bring a Bible? It's going to be helpful if you do. Why? Because the Bible is the source of truth. In very simple terms, Paul lays out why God gave us the Bible. The scripture was written for our 
learning. The word is didaskalon. It is a word that meant more than just to impart information. It was a word that meant to give instruction, to provide direction, to embrace guidance. It's all of those things. It's instruction, direction, and guidance. Think mother and father and children. The mother and the father don't just simply tell the children or the grandchildren what to do. They tenderly provide instruction, compassion, sensitivity, direction, guidance. The instruction, direction, and guidance, look what it says, includes patience and comfort and hope. God's promises are found in God's word. God's word is the source of hope. And that's why this week and next week and the week after that, I'm going to have something to say to you and I'm going to repeat it over and over again until you get sick of hearing it. And that is that the least qualified Christian is more qualified than the most qualified unbeliever to give people hope. How can an unbeliever give you hope since we know that God is the God of hope? Look at verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing. Look again in verse 4. For whatever things were written were written for our, our learning that we through the comfort in the scriptures might have hope. If God is the God of hope and if the scripture is the source of hope and if people want hope. But think about it. They want There's two kinds of hope that people want for. Hope apart from Christ. Hope apart from the forgiveness of sin. Hope apart from from the gospel, the Bible offers no such hope. The Bible says that it's okay for you to want to be sober. The Bible says it's okay for you to want to be sane. It's okay for you to want to be healthy. But sobriety and sanity and personal health nothing compared to the reality of the stain of sin that mars the human soul because in the end the thing that you need the most is the thing that the bible reiterates over and over and over again forgiveness of sin cleansing of sin a right relationship with god a right relationship with god so that you can have a right relationship with each other what is hope one simple definition might be Reliance on God's blessing and provision and the expectation of a future good. Think about that for just a moment. Because if hope means reliance on God's blessing and God's provision and the expectation of a future good that's rooted and grounded in the plan of God, C.S. Lewis called hope a continual looking forward into the eternal world. That's good. It's seeing what cannot be seen. It's longing for what cannot be touched. Emily Dickinson called hope the thing with feathers that perches on the soul and sings the tunes without words and never ever stops singing. When Watts drew hope, he drew her as a battered and bowed figured with one string left on her lyre, unquote. Paul ranks hope second only to love 
Remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 13? Love bears all things and then says, and hopes all things. Hope's what keeps you alive. I can't even tell you how many times working with law enforcement officials and difficult circumstances and domestic violence and and people who suffer from mental and emotional scars and profound difficulties. Imagine someone calls you and says, I think I'm going to kill myself. What do you think that that person needs? Not just an excuse to stay alive. That person needs hope. That person needs hope. Oddly enough, an excuse to stay alive for one day might be something as simple as saying, do you have a dog or a cat? Yeah. Who's going to feed it in the morning when you're gone? Will you? No. You need to be there. You need to wake up in the morning. And the truth is, when you wake up in the morning, it gives you at least one more day To determine whether or not hope is available. And remember this is the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is hope is available for you. Hope is available for you. We sometimes think about hope as being something uncertain but possible. But that's not what hope is in the Bible. Hope is something that is connected to the person of God. And the plan of God. And the promise of God. I read a story about a man in his middle years who was on a Caribbean cruise. On the first day out, he noticed this attractive woman about his age who smiled at him with a friendly smile as he passed her on the deck, which pleased him. And that night, he managed to get seated at the same table with her for dinner. And as the conversation developed, he commented how he had seen her on the deck and and how he was immediately struck by her welcoming smile. And she looked at him and she said, I just couldn't help but notice the striking resemblance that you have to my third husband. And at that, his ears perked up. And he said, how many times have you been married? And she looked demurely down at her plate and she said, twice. (laughs) Girls can be way more forward than you ever knew. In the book of Proverbs chapter 24 verse 16 it says, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. The English version says, no matter who or how often an honest man falls, he'll always get back up again. That's what what people with hope do. People fall down. And then people with hope get up. We study the Bible because we believe that it's divine in origin and not human. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20, knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Think about it. Think about it. The Bible is your guide map. Every visitor, Every foreigner needs a map or a guide. 
When you find yourself in unfamiliar territory, as we travel through life, the Bible claims to be that guide. It claims to point us in the right direction. It's the handbook that helps us deal with the difficult subjects of pain, of suffering, of a world that's falling apart. In 2 Timothy 3.17, Paul writes that the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is the source of truth. But remember, remember, it isn't just a truth that's disconnected from God and Christ and the gospel and purpose. We don't study God's word simply to increase our knowledge. We don't study it to prepare to win arguments. We study God's word so that we can know God's will, help accomplish God's plan, and survive the holocaust of sin and be able to go forward. God's word should strengthen us and lead us to good works and then provide hope for the hurting The Bible points us to the person of God, the promise of God. And Jesus is the ultimate promise. Jesus, remember, when he was faced with difficulties, answers the challenges and the temptations. Not with, hey, I'm the second person of the Trinity, and guess what? I think I'm just going to blow you up. He answers pain, problems, suffering, and temptation. With the same tool that he knew that you would need. The Bible. The Bible teaches us. The Bible encourages us. The Bible gives us hope. It was the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson. He lived between 1620 and 1686. He wrote. Leave not off reading the Bible. Till you find your hearts warmed. It was his old Puritan way of saying. Keep reading the Bible until your heart catches on fire. I love that. The Bible will not only inform you, but inflame you. Watson wrote, quote, The Bible is a rock of diamonds, a chain of pearls, the sword of the Spirit, a chart which the Christian sails to eternity, the map by which he daily walks, the sundial by which he sets his life. Remember in 1650, they don't have smartphones. But you do. The Bible is the indispensable app that you can't live without. The Bible calls itself food. Food may generate discussion about its contents and recipe, its smell and texture, but in the end you have to eat it. And the Bible claims to be something way more than food. It claims to be nourishment that will nourish you. That will strengthen you for the task at hand. And so the strong and the weak diligently work for harmony. Look what it says in verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. According to Christ Jesus. Because Paul knew that hope and harmony work together to make a strong, stable congregation. And remember, again, Paul reminds us that God is the God of patience and comfort. Why? Because it's going to take patience and comfort for you to be like-minded. 
You know, I find it easy to be like-minded just so long as the person agrees with me. Well, that's actually not what like-minded is all about. Like-mindedness isn't just simply trying to persuade the other person to think like you and act like you and dress like you and believe like you. It's going to take patience and comfort to bear one another's burdens and offer hope. The healthy church loves harmony. And so when Paul invites the God of patience and comfort to grant you to be like-minded, guess what he's also encouraging? Patience and comfort for you. Because it's going to take patience and comfort to create an atmosphere of harmony. Remember what we said. Where two or more are gathered, chances are there's going to be two or more differences, difficulties. So how do we perpetuate harmony without sacrificing liberty? How do we embrace unity and harmony, but all the same while allow for the expression of personal freedom? How do we perpetuate harmony, but don't fall into the trap of legalism? Paul says, love each other. Minister to one another. Encourage one another. Make sure that they're given an opportunity to express themselves. Think about what Paul is saying. He's saying, I encourage harmony, but is this like-mindedness absent Christ? No. It's according to Christ Jesus. What does that mean? I think it very simply means... We do what Jesus wants. We do according to Jesus' example. Again, does like-mindedness mean having the same mind and always agreeing about everything? Again, Robert Mounts gives us the helpful insight. He says, I don't think so. Paul's desire is that the Romans, quote, mind the same thing among one another. That's the literal translation of the text. It doesn't mean that they should all come to the same conclusion. That is obvious from the discussions of the weak and the strong. The conscience of each is to guide the conduct of that person. It is unity of perspective that is desired. And then he goes on and he talks about Isaiah chapter 11. The Messiah will come as a shoot springing from the stump of David's family line. He'll rule the nations. And on him the Gentiles will rest their hopes. The Gentile mission of the early church is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And remember Paul is writing to the Romans. It's Jews and Gentiles getting together for what purpose? To honor God and obey God and submit to God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So it isn't a getting along absent the gospel, absent the truth of the Bible. Look what it says, that you may glorify one another or glorify with one mind and one mouth the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his way of saying, We have a common God. We have a a common Savior. We have a common source of salvation and hope. And because we have a common source of salvation and hope, we have mutual harmony. Paul says that God is at work making harmony possible and visible because we're accepting each other. We're encouraging one another. We're bearing one another. And that the strong and the weak receive one another. Look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, receive one another. Just as Christ also has received us to the glory of God. Now the circle 
the circle is now complete. How do we know? Chapter 14, remember verse 3? Let him who eats despise... Let, him who, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. His argument? God has received the person in Christ by grace. And so can you. That's the point. And so when he says in verse 7, Therefore receive one another... Just as Christ received us. How did Christ receive us? When we got our act together? When we got a job? When we became a solid citizen and a responsible human being? Did God receive you when you were still sinners? John Phillips writes, quote, with all of our foibles and failures, with all of our weakness and wickedness, with all of our lack of loveliness, with all of our defects of character, with all of our spiritual infirmities, he received us. So how can we close the doors of fellowship to someone else who is genuinely saved but who has different problems? How can we reject the person who's in pain, who's hurt, who still is experiencing depression and difficulties. Paul's recipe for a fortified fellowship is the mature help the immature, the strong bear the weak, and through lavish amounts of Bible study, and a Bible study that just doesn't impart information but includes transformation, where everyone is committed to harmony, where personal and corporate growth in Christ becomes a tear-stained altar where we see our family and friends who are in desperate need, estranged from God, hurt and broken. And we remind them that there's help for them. And then you make a personal sacrifice. And then you study your Bible. And then you support congregational harmony. And you create an environment of hope. There really are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have hope. And those who need hope. Paul's admonition, if you have it, be willing to give it. If you need it, Stand prepared to receive it. We'll continue our study next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, we thank you that you care about us and that you encourage us to care about each other. That harmony... And hope are necessary ingredients if there's going to be wholeness and wellness and unity. And Heavenly Father, at times in our lives, we understand that isolation and separation, we think that that's what's going to be helpful, but in fact, it's harmful. That you call us to minister to one another, 
to pray for one another, to encourage one another, and to be there for one another. And that can't take place all by ourselves. And so again, Father, I pray for that man and that woman. Lord, who is empty and hurt. Lord, I pray that they would come to the fountain and they would drink deep from the well of life, from the God of hope, and that we would point people to the source of hope, Jesus. Again, Father, we commit that to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you.